You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Dr. Holly Oxhandler, and I am one of your hosts, and I am joined by my co-host, as always, Robert Four. Hey, Robert. Hey, Holly. Well, today's episode, we are going to be talking with Dr. Beth Allison Barr about the history of women within Christianity, why understanding that history is important for us today, and her new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. But first, Robert, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. So glad to be here chatting with you and uh, having fun listening back through because I'm uh, actually in the process of editing this conversation right now. I paused that to to come on and record. So enjoying hearing all of this again. But uh, I'm good. Yeah. How are you doing? That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm doing well. Um, We are, I feel like the, we've had like little colds kind of running through our home these days, but we're doing okay and making yeah. it. Thankfully, it is not COVID, so we are grateful for that. Um, but yeah, we're just, you know, we're wobbling along and keeping up with the things, but yeah. I'm excited to be here with you and I really am excited for us to finally get to share this great conversation with Dr. Barr with our um, our listeners after you know, we, we were just talking about how we recorded this uh, a couple of months ago, but, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it has felt like it was a very, very long time ago. So yeah. I think that's actually, uh, I know in last week's uh, intro, we talked about how the first intro, I cut a, a, a bunch of chunks out because uh-huh. it was so long. And one of the chunks that I had cut out from that first one, I think that was on um Dr. Hillary McBride's episode, but mm-hmm. one of the chunks that I had cut out was me kind of reflecting on, we had these conversations, uh, you know, November, early December, and then the holidays and all that. And so listening back through them was kind of like uh, revisiting them for the first time. It was kind of like, oh, yeah. oh, right, yes, I'm, all of this is kind of bringing back those memories of what this was like, but it's good to hear them again, right? Because all that information kind of melted away into the chaos of holidays and all that type of stuff. And so, yeah, good to to hear this again. And uh, it'll be good to, for, to share it with everyone else. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited um, to be able to share this episode. But before we dive into this episode, I have a question for you, my friend. All right. Okay. So you and Brooke, um, you know, Gray was your first little one who you had a few years ago, and you have both welcomed in a little girl um, within the Mm -hmm. last year. So I am curious, in light of that, um, just the gender shift between those, like what are some differences that you have noticed as a father transitioning from having just a son to then having a son and a daughter? Like, what has that been like for you? Hmm. Yeah, that's such a good question. I, my, first thing, my first instinct is to say not necessarily a ton, but I don't think mm-hmm. that's accurate. I think that would be kind of my ideal in terms of not reinforcing any particular, you know, stereotypes or, or, you know, kind of social expectations or whatever. But I think in reality, it's forced me to 
become aware of a different set of those, right? So with gray, obviously, Mm. there's plenty of things that uh, I try to be really intentional about pushing back on, you know, he comes home from school and, you know, someone said that crying is for babies or something or whatever, right? Like stuff like that where I'm Mm -hmm. like, hey, no, I want him to know that there's, uh, you know, to push back on all the maybe kind of classic Western male, you know, whatever I think of like a cowboy, mm-hmm. right? Like strong yeah. and tough and whatever, right? Like I, I want him to know those th- that he is strong, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't, you know, be sad or whatever, right? Like all that. And I think mm-hmm. with Brennan, it has been, and obviously she is not encountering a lot of those things, you know, quite yet from other places, but I think just the awareness of a different set of those things is interesting in terms mm-hmm. of what types of messaging I think she's going to get kind of implicitly or explicitly from other people and culture and stuff like that and trying to kind of think through that, which is a little bit more removed from me, right? Because obviously that Mm -hmm. wasn't my experience. And so I don't know, it's just an interesting kind of different set of things to kind of think through which, I mean, I'm glad, obviously, I'm thankful for the the folks that we've had on the, this show and stuff like that. I'm, I'm thinking back on um, Hillary McBride's first time on the show mm-hmm. and when we talked about, you know, mothers, daughters, and body image and stuff like that. And just the people that I've gotten to learn from yourself included over the last handful of years that have helped my awareness of what those would be um, mm-hmm. so that now having a daughter, I can kind of have, have some ideas of here's what some of that is going to look like for her or what it could potentially look like what it likely could look like and so that I have kind of that that idea of how do I try and you know push against some of those things but I think that would be the main thing I think I I try aside from you know nicknames you know or whatever I think uh, I I try not to necessarily do anything particularly different but she's also you know just a a baby still so not a lot of uh, yes yes like you know different interactions yeah no that makes perfect sense and I could see how that may um, potentially change, you know, as she gets older, but um, just hearing how you've kind of wrestled through that. I I mean, I really appreciate that because I think that there are a lot of parents out there who are thinking through that as well and and implicit and explicit messaging and uh, with little, with sons and daughters and um, yeah, just like what that looks like, I guess, overall. What about for you? Because you kind of did the opposite. You had a girl and then a boy. Yeah. Right? So uh, I don't know what what kind of shifts uh, did you notice there, or I don't know. Yeah. No. That's um, that's a good question. Um, yeah. I, I feel. I mean, I think that having a daughter first. Um, you know, I, of course, you know, as a woman or as someone who identifies as a woman, like being able to know my own experiences, um, has definitely helped me kind of think through, uh, how to support Callie well as, you know, she is growing and as she is, you know, hearing messages and, you know, picking up on like, you know, certain toys are for girls and certain toys are for boys. And like, what does that really mean? And like, is that just, yes, big air quotes, y'all, like the social construction of these and, um, and just like what this all means. But then also, you know, uh, thinking through, you know, what this looks like in terms of opportunities she may have down the road and same with our son and thinking through what that looks like in different settings, um, including 
uh, faith-based settings and, and the churches that we attend and like what that all looks like. So, you know, we've definitely been in conversation with our kids about that. And Corey and I remain in conversation just around like, you know, just, just these gender dynamics and, um, the socially constructed, you know, gender norms and, you know, and as listeners on the show, I think we've talked about before too, about how, you know, like I am, uh, uh, the primary provider within our family and that my husband is a stay at home mm-hmm. dad. And mm-hmm. so, you know, our, our kids are exposed to some things that, you know, both my husband and I were not exposed to in that regard growing up. So, yeah, so there's just lots of fun layers to think about and what that means for different kids and families. Yeah. And yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, it just, I mean, along those lines, so it makes me think about today's conversation um, in that we had with Dr. Barr and, you know, and just what this has looked like, particularly within the Christian tradition and the history of women within Christianity and, um, and her new book. So, yeah, well, we can let them go ahead and hear it uh, if, if, if that's, unless you have other thoughts. No, that's it. Go ahead, friend. All right. Well, enjoy our conversation with Dr. Beth Allison Barr. All right. Enjoy, y'all. Hey, today we have Dr. Beth Allison Barr joining us. She received her bachelor's from Baylor University and her master's and PhD in medieval history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is an associate professor of history and an associate dean of the graduate school at Baylor University. Her research focuses on women and gender identity in late medieval England, how the advent of Protestantism affected women in Christianity, and medieval attitudes towards women in sermons across the Reformation era. Beth is a regular contributor to The Anxious Bench, Christianity Today, and The Washington Post. She's also the author of The Pastoral Care of Women in Late Medieval England, co-editor of The Acts of the Apostles, Four Centuries of Baptist Interpretation, and the book that we're going to be discussing today, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Dr. Barr, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Oh, we're so, so honored and grateful for your presence. Um, Is there anything that we missed in the intro there that you want to share? You gave more than I was expecting you to give. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, for our listeners too, just a little fun fact. Dr. Barr is a colleague of mine at Baylor, and it is just so, so fun to get to have this conversation with her today. I know we've been looking forward to this for quite some time, so it really, really is a a treat to get to have you here today. So thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about kind of the backstory behind this book, right? Obviously, you've been studying this topic around the history related to uh, women and gender identity within Protestantism and Christianity uh, for, for a while, and you you lead this book with a powerful personal story. Can you tell us what inspires you to write this book and maybe even like who you wrote this book for? Yeah, no, it's easy. Um I really kind of wrote this book in an act of desperation, I think. And it was when I realized in 2016, um, so many things going on in my personal life as my husband being fired, as well as things that were going on on the larger political stage. But I realized from my years of teaching women, you know, women's studies classes is that my students had no idea 
um, about the history of women in the church, the history of um, how ideas about women have changed over time. They had no idea about the continuities that we find in patriarchal arguments. And so every time I taught, uh, you know, had a new group of students in my class, I would hear over and over again, how come I never knew this before? How come I never mm. knew that Phoebe was a deacon? How come I never knew that, you know, these, uh, that the, the way that women are taught to behave in 21st century evangelicalism is exactly the same as they were taught in 19th century Victorian world. Um, mm. And so I had all of those ideas that have been in my head for a long time. And in fact, on the anxious bench, I began writing because part of this was sort of also out of this desperation. It's just like, I, people have to know this stuff. They have to know that there was so much scholarship that shows us how to look at Paul differently. Um, mm -hmm. so I started a series on the anxious bench called disrupting. Um, no, that one was on Paul. I can't remember what I titled it, but something about Paul. <laughs> and then I started a series called disrupting Christian patriarchy, um, which is essentially go starting to lay out some of what I did in the making of biblical womanhood. Mm -hmm. And so really it was just born out of this realization that evangelical Christians were working from assumptions that were wrong. And they were wrong because we have forgotten our history. And so my hope was mm. by filling in those pieces that we have simply forgotten, that it could help shift the conversation about women in the church. Um, so that was really, you know, that was why I decided to write it. Um, and my act of desperation came from our personal crisis of my husband being fired over you know, the sort of at the core of what happened to us at the church was this conversation about women in ministry. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading about that happening in the introduction where you talk about, you know, what, what had happened for y'all personally and, mm -hmm. um, and when he was fired and like how they, there was a more of a performative like yes. goodbye and it yes. went, oh, and just your rage and the pain <laughs> that you felt i mean you wrote it so well in this book for you know for any reader to pick up on and be like yep i'd be pretty upset too by how yes. that all um, unfolded i think a lot of women who read that too in fact i i know this because they've reached out to me but they what happened to me happened to them Mm -hmm. uh, they have very similar stories uh, about how they were, they, you know, their husbands or, or them, how they were dismissed in minute from ministry in churches mm -hmm. over issues like what happened to us. And so I think that is part of it. I think part of the reason it resonates, my story resonates is because it's not just my story. Um, it's the story of so many evangelical women and what we've been living, you know, for, for decades yeah, I I think I mean I think you're right in the sense that I mean I've been I've seen a lot of the interaction that you've had with other women. I've heard personally from friends who have read this book on the impact it's had um, for them. And I also recognize that I know you and I, like around this time, I don't know if you remember this, but I know around this time of when you and your family were going through some of this, I didn't know that this is what y'all had been experiencing and going through. But I remember at one point you and I connecting over some of my own journey in recognizing yes. some of these patterns. Do you remember this? Yes, I do. I <laughs> yes. do. Yep. Yes. 
and even standing outside the community having this conversation. Um, yes. So I, so I do know, and just want to echo that, like you're, you know, you are not the only one and, and for, you know, for my family and I, it looked very different, but there was a a moment of realizing, oh my gosh, my son's voice is going to matter in this space, but my daughter's voice is not. And I Mm -hmm. am not, I can't sit with that as a parent and reckon with that. Um, And we, you know, for another day, that conversation, but just to say like, I, I hear you. I remember, and it is a, I mean, it's a painful process in recognizing Mm -hmm. that. And then even hearing from folks that you trust and may look up to in various ways that digging in the heels of like, right. you know, this is how it is. Exactly. And, oof, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. not, not, no, no, even pretense right. of listening that right. this is, that this is not, this is something uh, that we have drawn the line here. And it always struck me that the line that was drawn was, had nothing to do with Jesus. It was a line being drawn on cultural values and nobody was recognizing that it was a cultural line, not a gospel line. Yeah, that's a really, I love how you articulated that, um, the cultural line versus the gospel line. I, I think that's so important. Well, I think that really leads me into the next question that we had. So you really jump right in this book talking about patriarchy and what it is. And so I would love for you, you know, in this space for you to demystify a bit about, you know, what patriarchy is and how it has evolved throughout history um, and within the church. And maybe even, you know, if you have some examples or you can talk through a little bit about like, how does it show up? in our world today in the church and more generally? No, that's that's a good question. The reason I started off was, again, a lot of this book was really written from my experience as a teacher. And one in Mm -hmm. my women's studies classes, one of the first one of the first concepts that I have to get across to my students is the reality of patriarchy. And many of my students walk into my class um, interested in women's history, but many of them don't, you know, they don't want to identify with what they would consider to be the radical aspect of women's history. And so they, they, they often don't understand the structural nature of, um, of what has happened to women throughout history. And so the way that I help them see that is through helping them understand patriarchy and patriarchy, really, it's the structural, um, you know, these structural, uh, you know, structures within human society that usually revolve around the economy, that revolve around law, that revolve around, you know, also around um, culture practice, and then often bleed over into religion that argue that women are under the authority of men and that women are always less, um, you know, their, their work is devalued. Their work is often narrowed in a way that men's work is not. And women are very rarely in leadership roles, that it's almost Mm. always men who are leading. And one of my favorite um, articles written on this is one by Judith Bennett, and it's called Medieval Women, Modern Women Across the Great Divide. And she ends that article 
with the um, image of a dance. And she says, you know, patriarchy is kind of like a dance um, throughout time and every era, you know, the costumes change and the um, decorations change and the food changes and the music changes, but the men are always leading. And Mm. that to me is always a really clear understanding of what patriarchy is. And of course the response is why, why are men always leading? And that's, that's the historical question. And so, and what I want, what I want both my students as well as readers of my book to understand is that why are men always leading is actually not rooted in the Christian God, Mm. (laughs) that it is actually something that it is rooted in human society that we have carried to, um, to our faith. And that the ways we have carried it to our faith are very similar to the ways that other faiths have carried it to theirs. And Mm. that's often something that strikes um, students when you do comparative religious um, studies. You find that there is a great deal of similarity between how um, many different faiths throughout history treat women. And so it makes you think that maybe this isn't actually about the faith. Maybe this is about something outside the faith. Um, that is being carried mm. to it. So mm. that is real. That's what I, you know, I have to help my students understand that structural issue. And so one example I give, I also gave it in the making of biblical womanhood. It's a very poignant example, and it has to do with what women are paid. And today, since the ERA, yeah. there's a lot of conversation about how, and still today, that women get paid about seventy cents to every male dollar. And Mm -hmm. you can look, um, you know, I mean, still, this is such a constant refrain in in women's work and women's economic opportunities. But what really strikes my students is that this is exactly the same refrain that we find in the 14th century in England. Yeah, I remember reading that. (laughs) Yeah, almost exactly the same, less than men. And this, again, you know, it provokes this question, why? Why is the labor of women in which they are doing the same jobs as men, why is it devalued at this consistent rate? And of course, you know, the answer is, is because there is something else going on that is devaluing women in these societies. And that is patriarchy. Um, so bringing in examples like that, I think, you know, can help everyone realize the, this historical continuity that has nothing to do with our faith. It has to do with structures outside of our faith. Um, so is that a little, is that helpful? Yeah, no, I think that's <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, I think it's so helpful and even above and beyond like what I had initially asked for, like. I love how you tied it in with like how you help your students see this and yeah. And how it's, you know, structurally, you know, it's outside of our tradition, right? right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Robert, what were you just going to say? Sorry. <laughs> no, I just, I, th- I think it's a, such a, an interesting uh, like way of phrasing it, right? That it's, it's, there's, there seems to be this thing where like, oh, well, if this is how things have been for a long time or whatever, that that's like, you know, how they are supposed to be or how, you know, right. whatever that kind of like assumption of whatever. Mm-hmm. And instead saying, okay, this didn't, we're, we're getting kind of the, uh, the causality backwards, right? It's not like, okay, from really good 
theological unpacking came this other thing. It's like, okay, right. this, these culture and this culture and systems, we're, we're taking that and mapping it onto our faith. But exactly then right. it feels like it gets tricky with people because we're wrapping it in that, like that theological language that then people get mm-hmm. like super defensive about it because exactly. they, they kind of associate it with that. Right. So that's obviously exactly that makes right. the conversations harder. It's, it's become a part of, um, of Christian identity. Yeah. And so people mm. feel threatened that if you try to point out that this actually is not at the root of Christian identity or part of Christian identity, then because their faith has been wrapped around that identity, um, it threatens their faith. And mm. that's yeah. why people respond very poorly to this um, when they have so much at stake. It's also why when people are confronted with the reality of patriarchy and how it has um, influenced um, Christianity, it also causes people to really, you know, when they realize that they have been taught these things about how to be as a Christian woman that actually aren't, don't, don't have anything to do with Christianity, it often can cause their faith to crumble because, again, it's an identity mm-hmm. feature. And, you know, the, the word right now for it is deconstruction. Um, and, you know, sometimes people, they, when they, because their faith is based up on these um, accretions to Christianity, on these, you know, building blocks that have come from things like the fundamentalist movement that have come from a literal understanding of the Bible, um, like seven day creationism that have come from a hierarchy in marriage and a hierarchy in church. Um, If their faith is built in those areas, then when you deconstruct those areas, their faith often deconstructs too. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's really sad to watch that happen. Yeah. And even uh, maybe even like a particular type of quote unquote, like masculinity, right? Because, you know, I can, Mm -hmm. I mean, plenty Mm -hmm. of people that plenty of men who say like, uh, all this like biblical manhood, whatever, like, you you know, everybody watches Braveheart on youth retreat or whatever, right? And they're like, I don't, don't, Mm -hmm. that's not me, right? Like, I like Mm -hmm. music and poetry or whatever, right? Like, not to be super stereotypical, but like, if those things don't appeal to you, you kind of go, okay, well, maybe this all right, I'm, I'm kind of out, right? Like if that's the only way of being, if that's the correct right. way of being, right? So, yeah. So you, you write about Paul's teachings quite a bit, right? And I know you talked about um, how important chapter two was to write. Can you talk about the, the context around Paul's teachings, <laughs> the, the role that women had in his ministry, and then uh, maybe bring that forward to like, what, what, what does that have for us today in how we understand Paul? So, um, you know... The Paul chapter was a very hard chapter for me to write. In fact, I didn't really want to write it when I first thought about the book because I knew how many, I I knew how controversial it had become. And my whole argument was actually not about the biblical text. My whole argument is that history informs, informs how we see our faith, informs how we read the biblical text. So what you have to get people to see is how much, history is informing, their culture is informing what they do mm-hmm. and what they think. And so my husband convinced me, he was like, Beth, if you don't convince them that that's what's happening when they read these Pauline passages, he's like, they're not going to follow the rest of your argument. Hmm. And so he convinced hmm. me, um, and he was right. He was right about that. Um, so the way I tackled the Pauline chapter was not trying to do uh, you know, an exegesis of every single problematic passage in Paul. The way that I tackled it was trying to show how when we bring history to the story, 
it changes how we view some of these texts Mm -hmm. with sort of hoping then that people would be like, whoa, well, if it changes how we view these, what does that mean for these other texts? Yeah. Um, You know, just sort of opening the eyes uh, that we're not actually reading these texts literally. We are reading these texts within through a particular lens. And that is causing us to see them, to see them emphasize female subjugation in a way that they actually don't. So that was kind of my hope behind it. And so I took, I chose examples, which were examples that I've been teaching from for years. I mean, that's really, you know, part, you know, what helps my students, what helps my students see this. And so one of the books that I often use in the classroom was a collection, an edited collection uh, by a medieval historian named Alcuin Blamiris. And it was called Women Defamed and Women Defended. And it would go through and it has, you know, it's an analogy. I mean, it's an anthology of texts from the classical world through the medieval world um, that sort of show different ways that people either, um, you know, thought about women in good ways or thought about women in not so good ways. And so one of the texts in there, of course, is Aristotle and his discussion of the household codes um, or, you know, the, the Greco-Roman household mm. codes. And it was mm-hmm. a very influential text. Um, it's not the only household code that we find in the ancient um, in the ancient Western world, but it is one of them. And so I and when my students read that text, they are often like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This both sounds like the New Testament household codes, but there's also some pretty interesting differences. And of course, those pretty interesting differences um, that I unpack with my students are, um, you know, this Greco-Roman household code is only talking to men. I mean, there's clearly, it's all about power. Mm. It's only talking to men, by men, um, you know, about their authority within the household. Whereas when we get to the New Testament household codes, what we actually see is it's not just talking to men. It's talking to the men, the women, the children, the slaves, which is really mm. unusual. Yeah. Um, And so it helps my students to see by putting that New Testament household code in the context of the um, household codes that were, uh, you know, part of their world. It helps them see the difference in what is going on in Christianity. So, you know, I do have to put a pause in with this because there is a triumphalist Christian narrative that Christianity, if we root down to it, you know, it makes everything better for women. And this is not mm. always an act. This is not <laughs> really where I'm going with this. Um, it, uh, you know, the what we know is that actually in the Jewish world in the first century and even in the Greco-Roman world, there were already patterns that were giving women um, leadership positions in under certain circumstances. And we know the Jewish world allowed for female teachers and women who were learned scholars who taught with the authority of men. And so the whole reason that the early Christian world was able to accept teaching women like Martha and like Phoebe um, was because there was a pattern already. They were, you know, this wasn't a completely new thing to them. Um, So it's not just Christianity Um, in some ways, Christianity is, you know, the, the women that we see, who stand out in the New Testament, um, there are patterns for them in the world around them. Now, not, you know, women are always much less inclined or much less likely to be leaders than men. So they're always more of the exception than the rule. But nonetheless, there are these figures here that would have been familiar 
that would have made these leading women more familiar. So I always have to put that caveat in. But at the same time, what we do see in the New Testament is um, we do see that Paul is often pushing against the things that these new churches that he helps found, and they're bringing things from their culture into their churches. And Paul, many of his letters are really filled with him being like, no, no, that is part of your culture. It's not Christian. So let's Hmm. not do that one. And I mean, really, I mean, that's what Paul's doing. He's going through and saying, that's not Christianity. No, no, it doesn't matter what class you are because we are all one in Christ. It really doesn't matter what your background, your ethnicity Mm -hmm. is. It really doesn't matter if you're free or slave because we are all one in Christ. I mean, this is kind of the narrative that we get throughout. And so when we think about what Paul's doing with women, first of all, we have to put it within the entire picture of what Paul's doing, where he is continuously refuting practices that are... Um, of the of the Roman world of the first century world and saying that's not the way we do things and you know this is his whole conversation about eating food for idols you know where it's like on the one hand it doesn't matter because in the Christian world even though that though that food is sacred in the Roman world it's not sacred in the Christian world so whatever eat it mm-hmm. but if it causes some people to stumble then maybe you shouldn't you know it's like being yeah. um it's being mindful of your neighbor yeah, mm-hmm. and being um, being kind to your neighbor, but also realizing that the Christian world functions differently. You know, it's no longer taboo to eat food that's left for idols because it doesn't mean anything um, to those who follow the Christian God. So there are, you know, we see lots of things like that going on. And we see that those passages about women, when we put them in the broader historical context, um, they all make so much more sense when we see them as Paul either addressing a particular problem in a church, um, such as the women in Ephesus, um, who mm-hmm, are bringing mm-hmm. teachings from where they were leaders in the um, in the religion and the local religion, the cult of Artemis, and they are bringing those things into the church. And Paul's like, no, no, you don't teach that here. You need to wait and learn and listen before, you know, you don't need to just start teaching these things that are not of the Christian world. And that makes a whole lot more sense because we know Paul can't be telling women that they can't teach because, I mean, what do we, what do we do with the women in the New Testament who do teach mm-hmm. and who Paul sanctions as teaching? Um, you know, what do we do with Priscilla and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. some people may be like, oh, well, she only teams teaches with her husband. And we're like, but that's still really, um, you know, even if her husband is with her, the fact is, is that she is still listed as an authority figure over these men and leader of a house church. So we, we know Paul's not telling women to be quiet for all time because he lets women speak and he gives women the authority to teach. So is that they have to put within this historical context? Yeah, no, that's it's so good. I I really appreciate the ways that you just unpack the importance of that historical context and um, understanding that we don't just draw these verses as literal without understanding the world they were written within and the intent behind them and just all those layers that you had given. It makes me think about. I mean, I I do think to some degree about my 
my experience um, that I had nodded to or alluded to a little bit earlier and a conversation that I had had with one of the elders at that faith community in talking <laughs> in talking about this yes. in particular. I don't know if I've told you about this actually. I don't know if but, you have that. Oh. <laughs> Well, um, well, I had, I, you know, I, I went and had coffee uh, with this one elder and, and one of the other elders there and and had nodded to some of what you had mentioned, too, around like, well, let's let's talk about some of the context of these verses and, and what's, you know, being um, what's being written and, and what's the meaning behind it in light of, you know, uh, culture and situations and such. And and very quickly, um you know, mm-hmm. this one one elder um, had brought up First uh, Timothy two twelve, yeah, and um, really said, "Well, well, this is what it says, and so this is what we stick with." And 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 one of the other elders um, had mentioned that, you know, if women did uh, begin preaching on a, a Sunday morning, that there would be people that would stand up and walk out, and so we couldn't have that. Um, <laughs> and so mm. so it's. It's, you know, so I, the reason that I bring this up is to, to, to verify like what you're saying, like, we, like folks do take these verses out of context. Yes. And I think what's so difficult that we have to wrestle with and, and wrap our, our, our minds around is that in these efforts, like there's a lot of pain that can be caused and hurt and voices being silenced and, um, and it's not, you know, it's not out of like, a. I don't, I don't know. I just, I really grieve how much we lose when we don't hold those spaces for those other voices. Um, that, that really, you know, are like, have that, that passion to preach and to, yeah. So, so, so with that, I, I would like to just kind of also kind of talk through, I know though that we have had women who have really um, had a pretty big impact on Christian history and particularly around medieval Christianity and the Reformation, the impact that they had that you write about. I don't know if you want to like go into some of that and talk about some examples of you know, women who, who did have a big role in shaping some of where we are today that I think we forget about. Oh, yes. No. And in fact, you know, just thinking, I mean, part of this, when we think about um, the entire way that conservative evangelicalism has um, constructed the narrative about women, not only does it construct the narrative that women are divinely called to be under their husband's authority, but it also constructs a narrative that women have, you know, that this has been, this is always the way that it has been within the church, that women have always been called um, to the to domesticity, um, to being a wife, to being um, a mother, and to their identity revolving around those roles. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem, though, is that that's just, you know, it's not, it's not biblically accurate. Um, one of the striking things you find when you go through the New Testament and actually, you know, write out the women who are in there and then write and see, like, how are they identified? And there are so many women that we actually don't know if they're married. We don't know if they have mm. male figures that are in the picture um, because the Bible doesn't tell us. And I mean, and this is actually really striking 
when you think about it, because if that if their whole identity is supposed to be wrapped around that, if that's what's so important, how come those parts are not important to the story? And so, I mean, that's really striking to me when we think about it. It's also not accurate historically, because when we look back historically, where on the one hand, women are never as likely as men to be in leadership positions. That is very true. But at the same time, we have a long history of women serving and leading in in the church. And um, their roles have changed over time. But, you know, culture has dictated what they are able and, and not able to do. Um, and in the medieval world, even though patriarchy was just as strong, it's I there was a loophole. <laughs> that's how I call it, um, where if women, mm. the, the further women distance themselves from their own bodies, from their own sexuality, um, the more they were seen as being able to carry the authority of men. And so we really have these powerful stories of women um, from the early church, from the early days of the Christian church, these powerful martyrs and these powerful, um, you know, we have the female, the the desert fathers. We also have the desert mothers um, who, you know, played very influential roles. You know, one woman, for example, um, are or women, I should actually say are the women that are associated with St. Jerome who helped, Mm. who really was the architect of the Vulgate, or we attribute him with being the architect of the Vulgate. And that's the translation of the Bible into Latin um, in the fourth century, which really became the primary Bible used throughout the medieval period. And we often uh, attribute that to Jerome. But the fact is, is that he had a lot of women who actually came alongside him, who worked with him, who did the actual translations. Um, and so it wasn't it wasn't just Jerome as part of this. Like one of them I talk about in my book, and it's it's St. Paula. And so, but as modern Christians, we have left those female parts of the story out. And we can think about the impact that this has on children, on on young women and men sitting in churches, listening to sermons week after week that only emphasize male leadership and only emphasize women's subordinate roles. Mm -hmm. And that what they learn and what they walk away with is not only that's the way it's always been, but that's the way God God designed it to be. Mm. Yeah. And it is... Um, you know, that is really frightening to me. Um, you know, we've simply forgotten these stories. And and that was my whole point in my chapter three, which is about this medieval world, is that I think even though patriarchy still existed in the medieval world, we also see women, ordinary women, um, aspiring to leadership positions in the church and claiming that they have the right to have these leadership positions. And I think a lot of this is because they heard these stories about powerful women who were preachers and teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they are stories that we no longer hear in the conservative evangelical world. And so mm-hmm. I think that's a that plays a big role in why we, and you know, my subtitle, and how really we have um, baptized um, patriarchy and mm. um, made it part of the gospel. Gosh, feels like baptizing patriarchy mm. would be a could have been the name, maybe. Um, oh. <laughs> I don't know if it's it felt yeah. p- pithy, yeah. Um, yeah. So obviously, mm-hmm. this book has like exploded. I mean, I've seen all over Twitter and things for months now. Uh, the, it just going all over the place and having such a huge impact. 
Are there ways that that you have heard, maybe are there a couple that have been really meaningful to you that you've heard about the, the book impacting others, uh, changes that are taking place for individuals or within churches or, or anything like that? Oh, yes. I have heard so, so, so many stories. I mean, it's, mm. I can't even keep up with how many stories I receive, um, mostly from women, but also from men and a lot of men that have reached out. Um, and indeed, you know, um, some of some of the common stories that I receive are women who, and some of the sad stories, are women who say that they wish they had read this book 15 or 20 years ago because they felt oh, called to gosh. ministry. And oh they goodness. felt, and they never pursued that calling because they thought that even if they were called to ministry, um, that the larger calling was for them to give that up um, for the sake of you know, what they thought was the more important role for women, um, which was getting married. And I mean, I've heard that story over and over again about women who did not pursue a calling because um, they felt either that it was wrong or they felt that the calling to give it up, to sacrifice it was bigger. And so they they did not follow those callings. Um, I've heard a lot of stories, um, you know, coming from men who talk about how they are so grateful that they never realized the harmful impact of these stories that we tell in church, these narratives of these patriarchal narratives in church um, until they had a daughter and they begin to Mm. realize the impact that the, um, that these teachings had on them and that they are so thankful that there is a book that can help, um, help their daughters um, have a different life. And that has been something, you know, and I also hear that from, from other mothers, you know, that even if their life, uh, they can no longer make choices now that will allow them to do what they really felt God calling them to do, they hope their daughters can. And so yeah. those are, those are very meaningful um, stories that I hear. They also break my heart. Um, the stories I hear from pastor's wives really break my heart. Um, women who are married into these um, into these churches that are that are still very patriarchal, and there's almost there's no way out for them, and they see the damage that it does to them and their families and even their husbands because often within these patriarchal structures, um, you know, women are we have these very fierce hierarchies, and often what we find is a lot of men who are on staff and leadership in these churches. Um, are real, you know, they're lower on the totem pole and they are treated poorly too. Um, Mm. You know, when you teach people that there's some, that they have a God-given right to wield power over other people, um, that's a narrative that can carry into all sorts of um, parts of your life, including treating other men who work under you um, in um, very, in, you know, in ways that um, that, that deny them their, their humanity. And so I, I really feel sorry for these, these women, these pastor's wives who, um, the only way out is for their husbands to lose their jobs. But unlike me, they don't have another income to fall back on. Yeah. And, mm. and so they're really just trapped in these, in these places. Yeah. Gosh, that's, yeah. 
That's a lot of, I mean, those, I hear that's a lot of um, heavy stories alongside the stories that you had mentioned around uh, like some hope and ways of rethinking uh, or thinking through this topic in new ways that folks may not previously have thought about. So kind of holding that spectrum, um, I think is, that's, that is quite a lift. Um, I, yeah, I can imagine I really appreciate you sharing, you know, some of those stories that you've been hearing. And it actually segues quite, I think, pretty well into the next question that we had, which was we do recognize that, you know, the the focus of this show is on that intersection of faith and mental health. And so, you know, you talked a little bit about the deconstruction process earlier. Mm -hmm. You've also kind of been nodding to layers of um, possible grief that folks may be navigating as they're moving through these, I guess, layers of waking up or recognizing some of the messages that they've picked up were internalized. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about how you do see your work intersecting with mental health? Yes. (laughs) Well, I really hope, I mean, I think I... this is, these are stories that I've heard from so many women too. And, um, and I remember thinking this also, that if God, if this is the way God has made me, that his design for me is to be under um, masculine authority, it must mean that my impulse um, to be a leader my impulse um, to be called to ministry roles, my impulse to maybe not want to be a mother, uh, that all of these impulses must stem from sin. And there must be something wrong with me because I don't want to do what I'm supposed to do as a godly woman. And I can, you know, I can only imagine the, um, well, I, I know from experience um, the, uh, the, the way that twists one's thinking and image about oneself, um, when you are always feeling like there is something wrong with you because you mm. have to force yourself to act in these roles and to be this way. I mean, I think so much, although I, you know, I, I don't, all I know from Lynn Hybels is her story that she told in that book that really really was powerful to me when I read it. And that's um, Good Girls Don't Change the World, where she told her story about living with depression, um, mm. even though being married to, at the time, Bill Hybels, who was one of the most respected pastors mm-hmm. um, you mm-hmm. know, at that time, not now, yeah. but at that right. time. Yeah. And she talks about how she never, she did everything right, but she felt like she never measured up. And, and it led her down this path of depression and even suicidal thoughts, um, because she felt like the person she was wasn't good enough for what God had called her to be. And I mean, that's just a tragic, tragic story. And um, yet it is the story that women are told they have to accept, that you have to be this way to be godly. And so, I mean, I think we have evidence um, like, you know, the story of Lynn Hybels that shows us that this has a pretty detrimental impact on um, how women view themselves. And, uh, you know, and we can also think, although I don't, I mean, I'm thinking about the impact of purity culture. I'm also thinking mm-hmm. about the narratives that we find in social media on pastors um, mm-hmm. who, like, in fact, I was uh, 
this morning, I was even on a thread with Kristen Dumay, you know, the author of Jesus and John Wayne. And mm -hmm. very early on, right when my book at came out, apparently somebody was criticizing um, Kristen's hair. <laughs> Oh and goodness. somehow that got tied into one a thread on me or something. But I mean, you can even think about these these pastors. We've seen lots of them who have emphasized that women's appearance, that if they don't have a certain type of appearance for their husbands, um, that, you know, essentially they are not fulfilling their godly role to mm -hmm. be what their husbands yeah. need them to be. I mean, um, Sheila Gregory in her book, The Great Sex Rescue, really talks through the damage that these marriage books like Love and Respect um, have where women are essentially treated as, I mean, I think one of them says that God gave men the desire for sex and made women to be, you know, mm -hmm. to receive mm -hmm. that impulse. And yeah. so it's sort of like mm. what women's entire creation for is to be this, um, you know, embodiment of this, um, you know, sexual dream for their husbands. And I mean, and um, the damage that does to women. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. just incredible. Yeah. And also to yeah. men, the way women, yeah. men view women. I mean, why mm -hmm. do men rape women? Because they see them as objects. Why do they see them as objects? Because we teach them that women are objects by these types of narratives. So without being a mental health professional myself, and only speaking from the evidence, mm -hmm. not just in this own time frame, but in, you know, in the past and hearing women's voices, um, when we tell women that God made them to be this certain way and they don't match that, it causes yeah. us to, um, you know, to think that there is something wrong with us. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, one thing that <laughs> that's we, a low uh, note. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was well, no, 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 no. I'll just say I'm sitting with it because in part two, because, um, you know, what you are saying is not it's not like I have not heard some of the same narratives. Yes. Or, and it's not that we just yes. hear it from men. Women say it to other women as well. And, yes. you know, it's just a very internalized, yep. you know, it is a well grooved message. So um, anyways, yeah. I will step back. I know Robert's got a great question for you next. Uh -huh. so. Sure. OK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that was some kind of segue in there. Um, so one thing that we love to ask people when they come on uh, who are doing such great work, uh, writing a book or researching or advocating or whatever, right, is uh, about kind of what their hope is for this work, right? So obviously all your, your studies in this area, but then kind of culminating or maybe not culminating, but for the moment kind of being expressed in this book, what's your, what's your hope for all of that? So when I first wrote the book, I mean, I really had absolutely no idea what was going to happen. Um, and my really my desire was is to add something to this conversation um, about women in the church that would look at it from a different angle and that would become you know a maybe not a book that everybody was reading but a book that enough people had access to and read that it would begin to shift how people talked about women in the church. It would make women who were choosing Bible studies for other women maybe think differently about the ones that they were choosing. It would get people to investigate more the historical context, get um, lay people who don't read a lot of scholarship, maybe accessing. I tried to 
I tried to put a lot of stuff in, um, you know, the the places that I cited, the books that I cited. I tried really hard to cite accessible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, scholarship for people that they could go and look up and read for themselves, like Lucy Pepiot and Scott McKnight. Um, so that was really what I was, I was hoping that it would begin to help change some of these conversations. However, it, it hit with a much bigger splash than I was expecting. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that's given me to have even higher hopes that not only can it maybe over time shift the conversation, that maybe it can start shifting it right now. Um, that maybe we can really, and you know, so many other things are going on. It's not just the book. It's also just um, really the explosion of the Church Two movement, all of the stuff going on with Beth Moore and the Southern Baptist Convention. And all of these things are also going around at the same time, um, which I think is making a lot of women question what they have been taught. And it is those questioning women that I want to hear my book. I mean, that's really who I wrote it for. I wrote it for evangelical women um, who feel like what they have been taught to do, that something's missing and they don't really know what it is. And um, they're asking questions. And that's really who I wrote it for. Um, But now I'm even hoping that it can not only help change those women's minds, but it may be able to help change people who are really entrenched in um, in complementarianism that who who come to it because they have to read it because everyone else is reading it and they have to have a response and even if they don't approach it charitably that um, they won't be able to unsee it and so Mm -hmm. i'm hoping that that maybe the time frame for um for us to be more accepting of women in ministry and more accepting of how God has called women, um, that that might be shorter than what I in, uh, originally thought. So, you know, I've become more hopeful through through yeah. the last seven months. I mean, it's been almost seven months since the book came out. Yeah, that's great. Well, Dr. Barr, thank you again so much for joining us. Um, yeah. I, I loved getting to hear you unpack the, uh, your hope for this work. And I've loved not only hearing you talk about your hope for this work, but also watching you live it and embody it <laughs> in the ways that you continue to advocate and and talk about this book in a way that um, – really at the heart of it is to serve others. And so I, I really do appreciate that. Um, listener, if Thank you, you. Absolutely. Listener, if you'd like to connect with uh, Dr. Barr, you can find her at BethAllisonBarr.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Beth Allison Barr. Um, you yep. can order the Making a Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth, wherever you get your books. And we will have links to all of those uh, within the show notes. Um, you can connect with Robert at robert borecom or on any social media at Robert Bohr. You can connect with me at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at uh, Holly Oxhandler. Again, Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, yeah. It really has been a, a pleasure. Um, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? No, I'm just so glad to be here. And um, I'm just very thankful that, um, you know, I think a big piece when we think about women in the church is thinking about what, how, what we teach women that they need to be. 
And um, so I'm just really thankful to be part of something that is helping women be able to realize that God created them to be a lot more than what they have been taught. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com.